0: All major US indices were down today. Small cap stocks got burned. A lot of speculative names were down heavy on the day and risk off trades were on for the day. This is the Freedom Dividend episode 16. So today was a very, very weak day in the markets overall, a sea of red throughout all US indices. A lot of the smaller, more speculative names sold off very heavily. A lot of notable names, Grubhub down over 10% on the day. Virgin Galactic started off very weak, was able to rally intraday. Same thing with MicroStrategy, Bitcoin. Uh, A lot of the different smaller names were very weak overall today. There's a lot of selling going on in the market. And a lot of this is coming from Jerome Powell's comments over the last few days on inflation as he testified in front of Congress. And you saw a lot of weakness today in in people trying to get out of certain trades. Bonds were bought today. Uh, The Japanese yen was bought today and the Japanese yen is considered to be the safe haven currency in the foreign exchange markets. Oil sold off today and now oil is actually trading at below $72 a barrel. Gold was slightly up on the day And you just had a lot of weakness overall. Even Asian markets were weak to begin the day. And now starting Friday's session, uh, it's early Friday morning past midnight. So it's now the Asia trading session for Friday. And indices are down a lot there as well for the day. So a lot of weakness overall in the markets broadly. And a lot of this is because of all of the unknowns about what's going on with the Fed fighting inflation or not fighting inflation. So now the Fed has the their spotlight on them, and it's gonna be Powell's next move to determine what's going to happen in the markets next. But we see that people are starting to get very concerned about inflation, and people are starting to wonder if the Fed is going to fight inflation. Now, Powell's testimony over the past two days has been extremely dovish and he has con- he consistently told Congress that he is not going to fight inflation yet because the con- the economy still has a lot of recovering to do. And if the Fed stops giving accommodative policy now, we might have too many people continue to be unemployed and too much weaker- weakness in the labor markets. And so the Fed has to continue with its quantitative easing program. now. We today we got early in the morning jobless claims for the week. We got a 360,000 person jobless claims for the week which was about even with expectations. Now, these are initial jobless claims. So these are people who are filing for unemployment for the first time. Now, the levels of jobless claims filings if we go back to the start of the pandemic, the first weeks of the pandemic, we had about 6 million people per week filing initial jobless claims. And as we've continued further into the pandemic and then the recovery, those jobless claims have steadily declined week after week. Now, if we look at the chart in July, the jobless claims fell below 2 million per week. right? And then if you go through to October last fall, they were below 1 million per week. But since then, we've basically been at a steady pace of about three to 400,000 jobless claims per week. And again, these are initial claims of people filing for unemployment for the first time. So we continue to see weakness in the labor market despite the general consensus overview because as I said the other day, there are 9.1 million job openings, yet there are still 360,000 people filing unemployment claims for the first time. Now, one of the reasons for this is most likely because of relocation of displaced workers. A lot of people that lost their jobs during the pandemic were working in leisure, hospitality, right? They were waiters, waitresses, bartenders, maybe they worked at a hotel, some type of a hospitality job. And now some of those jobs have come back, but a lot of those jobs have not come back. A lot of restaurants have gone out of business for good and so to the extent that waiters or waitresses are looking for new jobs, those jobs are not there. Some of the new jobs are coming in financial services, uh, technology, engineering jobs. And so there's a misallocation of skills among the economy because of the way the job market is, uh, is filling right now. So that's the reason we continue to see a lot of jobless claims. Now, another reason is because, again, the economy continues to be very, very uneven in the recovery. A lot of bigger corporations continue to do very well as earnings continue to grow due to the consumer's ability to continue to borrow more money to spend in the economy, whereas a lot of small businesses are continuing to struggle and close day after day. And that is why we continue to see all of these initial jobless claims. But anyway, it wasn't a surprising number that we got with the 360,000 claims Uh, However, it shows that our labor market continues to be extremely weak, and it's giving Jerome Powell and the Fed more excuses to continue to be dovish and not want to fight inflation. But anyway, today was Thursday. We got the release. We get every Thursday at 4.30, we get the release of the Fed's balance sheet numbers. uh, And the Fed's balance sheet represents all of the financial instruments that they are buying within the marketplace. And so the idea is when the Fed wants to buy uh, bonds or mortgage-backed securities in the marketplace, they print the money to go and buy those securities or to go and buy those bonds. And the Fed balance sheet represents the amount of bonds and other assets that that they currently hold. So today we got the balance sheet number. And the balance sheet right now is a little over $8 trillion. Uh, they're at about eight point, uh, let's $8.09 trillion of assets on their balance sheet, well up from earlier this year. So the Fed is showing that not only are they talking about not fighting inflation, but they are actually doing the opposite and they are staying true to their word. They are continuing to provide accommodative policies within the economy, doing quantitative easing, which is a fancy word for money printing. But They are continuing to print money to buy assets within the marketplace. Now, as I said earlier, bonds were actually bought today slightly. Um, There wasn't a huge amount of buying in the bond market, but there was some buying. Right. And in the midst of all of this inflation that's occurring now, it's likely that it's the Federal Reserve that was buying a lot of these bonds. And it's also likely that some foreigners were buying these bonds as well, uh, most likely foreign governments. And that's also evident in our trade deficits. But most likely the buying was not coming from investors, but it was coming mostly from foreign entities like foreign governments and from the Federal Reserve itself. But anyway, their balance sheet continues to expand further and further. And the further their balance sheet expands, the less likely they are going to be able to fight inflation. Because to do so, they would have to rein in their asset purchases sell the assets from their balance sheet back into the market. And the only way they can do that is if interest rates rise. The only way they can sell the U.S. bonds, the U.S. Treasury bonds that they're holding into the market is they have to let bond yields rise so that there is investor demand to buy those bonds from the Fed. But anyway, the fact that they continue to expand their balance sheet more and more every single week shows you that they are committed to not fighting inflation and continue applying accommodative policies within the economy. Another number we got yesterday uh, was the PPI numbers, which is the producer uh, index, and that's relevant with the CPI. It shows the expenses that producers are incurring to make their products and services. So the forecast was for a 0.5% increase in the PPI month over month. The increase was actually 0.8% right And so we had almost a double uh, double result of what we were expecting. And this now brings the PPI uh, overall for the entire year now to uh, 2.9. 4.2 percent. So so far halfway through the year, producer prices are now up 42 percent. So the costs that it that it takes to, to create goods or create services in the economy is up 4.2% halfway through the year. So if we annualize that, that would be an 8.4% increase, right? Which shows you that inflation is occurring. It is 8.4% more expensive this year for businesses to produce goods and services than it was this time last year, right? And again, these are costs that are going to get passed down to the consumer. So not all of these costs have been passed down yet, but a lot of them have been. Now, one thing that I didn't go over when I went over the CPI the other day is some of the ways in which uh, prices are not being captured in the CPI. Now, there is this idea, there's this term called shrinkflation. What shrinkflation is, is it is essentially selling the same amount of a product or this same uh, product for the same amount of money, but for a less, lesser amount. So for instance, you might take a cereal box, right? And you might put less cereal in the box, but sell the, the cereal for the same amount of money as you were before. So in other words, the price stays the same and therefore it's not captured in the CPI. However, there is a price increase because if you consider how much cereal you're buying, then you're actually buying less cereal for the same price, which means the prices are actually going up, but that's not being captured in the CPI. However, this is something that is captured in the PPI, right? Another example of this would be um, selling uh, products in bulk, right? But for different amounts of money. And so if you break it down and you go by volume, you're actually getting a different amount of, of products for the same amount of money. And this is not being captured, but this is what a shrinkflation is. And you know, another thing with this um, is a lot of companies, they're restructuring the way that they price things. So for instance, maybe the price of a hotel room didn't increase, but maybe they're adding a extra resort fee Attached to renting out that room now that wouldn't be captured if the CPI was measuring the price of a hotel room Right, but that cost is being added in and that's a very real cost that you have to bear as someone who wants to buy a hotel room So therefore that's not being captured by the CPI, but it is showing in the PPI and as I went over before The other day the CPI is up four percent for the year or eight percent annualized CPI But the producer price index is up 4.2% for the year or otherwise 8.4% inflation for the year. So it shows that the CPI is not capturing everything that companies are doing to try and pass their costs onto their customers. But that is very relevant. And then just to go over the core PPI month over month, the forecast this month was a 0.5% increase. And instead we got a 0.7% increase. So the numbers are very similar there, but again, it's the same story. A lot of businesses are passing on their costs to their customers, but it's just not being captured by the CPI. Anyway, I want to get into uh, an interview. Jeff Gonlock was on CNBC today. And if you don't know who Jeff Gonlock is, he's known as the Bond King. Uh, He's a billionaire money manager. He runs Double Line Capital, um, but he's a very famous investor. And every now and again, they'll have him come on CNBC. Now he's actually, you, you hear me talk about a lot of the time how CNBC only has on people that are very, very bullish on the stock market or on the economy. Well, Jeff Gunnlach is one of the only people that they bring on, on a somewhat regular basis, who's actually very bearish most of the time, uh, especially in the last several years on the US economy. Um, and the reason being is because he manages so much money through his firm Double uh, Double Line that they just can't ignore him because he's a very popular name on Wall Street. As I said, he's known as the Bond King. But anyway, they had him on for a, uh, an interview today, um, and I wanted to take some of the points from the interview. I didn't get a chance to watch the whole thing, but I was able to catch pieces of it. And he made a couple of good points that are kind of in line with the people that are saying that we're going to have high inflation and that inflation is not transitory. But he also mentioned why he thinks uh, so many stocks are very overvalued in the U.S. So, you know, one point he made is that stocks are incredibly overvalued if you look at price to earnings, which is very evident um, the price to earnings ratios in the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ have not been this high since the peak of the dot-com bubble in the late 90s. So, but one point that he did make is that stocks are very cheap compared to bonds, right? And he referenced how the bond yields are being so suppressed because of all the Federal Reserve buying of bonds, as I just went over, that because it's so... Uh, costly to buy bonds, to own bonds, that is what's making stocks in the U.S. cheaper to an investor looking at all asset classes, which is actually a very good point. And so it shows you that as the Fed continues to artificially suppress interest rates, that is artificially pushing up stock prices. And it's very important to understand that because that tells you that stocks as a whole broadly are in bubble territory. Because if by definition, you believe that stocks are cheap because, or because bonds are, are so low in yield, if those yields start to rise, that means that those high valuations of stocks have to then reverse. right? But I thought that was a very good point. And he also mentioned how he believes that a lot of foreign investors are buying. US bonds. And he referenced how a lot of other nations around the world, and a lot of other central banks are also doing quantitative easing, which again is just a fancy word for money printing, but they call it quantitative easing, so it sounds a little bit better. But he mentioned how a lot of different foreign nations are doing quantitative easing around the world, and they also have negative real rates of return on their bonds, and so it's better to get a lesser real rate of return on US bonds if you're a foreign investor. Now, I sort of disagree with this. I, I understand the notion of it, and I agree with him somewhat that there is probably some foreign investor demand for U.S. bonds. But still, if you're a an investor overseas and you're looking at U.S. markets and you're realizing you can, you're still getting a real negative rate of return on bonds, to me, it's more likely that you would still look – to invest in equities or real estate or other asset classes, right? Or corporate bonds possibly, even if they're in the U.S. markets. But to me, I don't think any foreign investors in large majority are salivating over the ability to be able to buy U.S. bonds with a negative real rate of return. And I, I to me, I understand that some investors do need fixed income assets. But I still don't believe that there's huge investor demand there. I think all of the demand is from foreign governments who still think the Fed is going to fight inflation, right? And then therefore raise interest rates and raise the value of their bonds that they're going to get. Or it's the Federal Reserve themselves buying these bonds as evident in the releasing of the Fed balance sheet numbers, but anyway, I thought that was interesting because I really don't think there is much investor demand domestically or in foreign markets for US bonds. They're a negative real rate of return, right? And I think you're seeing there's starting to be more strength now in the gold price. Gold is still at 1830-ish. Closed the Thursday session at I believe eighteen twenty-eight dollars per ounce. So I think investors are starting to realize they need to be buying gold instead of U.S. bonds. Another point that he made, and before I go uh, there, some of the other nations that are doing QE, I just wanted to mention, um, the Eurozone is doing a lot of QE. Uh, Japan is doing a lot of QE. Uh, Australia, the Bank of New Zealand, uh, the UK, there are a lot of nations doing QE. And I think that's one of the reasons why we've gotten away with So much money printing for so long is because a lot of other central banks around the world are doing the same thing. But that just shows you that we need to return to a gold standard in the world because all central bankers are running amok by just continuing to print more and more money and flood the global economy with fiat currency. But anyway, moving along, he also said that he believes the U.S. dollar is going to be really weak over the medium term. He wasn't so sure about the short term over the next year or two, but he actually gave, uh, a, gave basically a passive clue to think that it's possible that the dollar is going to lose the world's reserve status as the world's reserve currency over the next several years or decade. And I think that's very interesting because he's pretty much the first person that CNBC has had on. That's allowed someone to say anything about a weaker dollar, right? But the dollar is clearly going to get much weaker. I mean, we're printing so much more money and we're so unproductive as an economy. If you go back to when I talked about how currencies appreciate and depreciate in the last episode, right? A currency appreciates when you have higher normalized interest rates for that currency and therefore by owning that currency, you can get paid a higher interest rate. Currencies appreciate when the economy that is represented by that currency is productive, right? Because productive economies, as I've mentioned before, work to create deflation, right? Productive economies, lower prices create deflation, which therefore raises the value of the currency, right? And that creates an appreciation of the currency. If you were in the United States for the first uh for the first part of the 1900s, we experienced massive deflation, right? And the dollar appreciated in value because we had a very productive economy and we didn't have tons of money printing and central bankers running amok. But it was very interesting that he brought that up, right? And CNBC challenged him a little bit on that, but, uh, and and referencing that other nations are doing QE, but still it's it's, to me, it's very obvious that the dollar is going to get weaker over time. Look at the past hundred years. The dollar has gotten weaker throughout the decades, every single decade since the federal reserve was created in 1913. He also did reference the feds bond buying program, which I already went over. And um, he also talked about how the last few days it's gotten very difficult for the fed to be able to talk about inflation as it's starting to get very obvious that inflation is not only here, but it's starting to become a very big problem in the economy, right? And whether or not it's transitory or not, the inflation numbers are so high that even if it's just transitory, it's hurting a lot of Americans right now. And he talked about how the American consumer is again, stretching to be able to make ends meet by taking on debt to buy things that he needs because prices are going up so dramatically throughout every sector of the economy. And that's the other important issue here is it's not just that the inflation is contained to certain sectors within the economy, right? Supply and demand pressures can sometimes create that, right? If there's a a shortage of a, a specific good, then there can be inflation in one area and not others. But when you look at the overall economy, the big picture, it's inflation that's occurring everywhere in all sectors throughout the economy. It's not just based in a few different sectors. It's every single sector in the economy, right? You have inflation and that shows you that it's not transitory because it's not due to internal factors having to do with certain industries. It has to do solely with all of the money printing that's going on in the economy and with how low our interest rates are. But it's very important to understand, that because our inflation is not, specific, it's not specifically contained in one or two sectors or industries, that is showing you that inflation is not transitory. It is here to stay. But the problem is it's going to get so much worse. And, you know, again, as I said, Jeff Gundelach is basically the only bear that ever gets to make it on CNBC, He's the only person that's brought on to CNBC that has negative outlooks on the U.S. economy or the stock market, right, or different global macro factors. And again, I said, as I said, they have to bring him on because he's such a dominant name on Wall Street that he gets tons of viewers. And so they love to bring him on and they would hate to lose him by not inviting him on because he's very bearish when he comes on television. But what I want to add to that is... You know, CNBC, if you go back to CNBC panels and shows that were in 2005, 6, 7, all of the columnists and all the people that were on CNBC as regulars that that hosted the shows or were uh, regular contributors to shows, every single one of them missed the housing crisis. Not a single one of them saw the 2008 financial crisis coming. Even if you go all the way up Two thousand six, two thousand seven, even the beginning of two thousand eight, people were clueless on CNBC. They had no idea we were in a housing bubble. They had no idea all of these problems were occurring in the economy. So when you watch CNBC today and they're talking about how inflation is transitory, how do you know they know what they're talking about? These people don't have a clue. They couldn't figure out a bubble if it hit them smack in the face, right? These people missed the biggest financial crisis in our country's history besides the Great Depression. So their credibility should be shot. Now, the problem is a lot of them want to say, oh, well, nobody could have seen this housing crisis coming. It was a black swan event that nobody could have predicted or seen coming. Well, if you ever watched the movie, The Big Short, there were a few select people who actually saw The housing crisis coming right and it was very obvious to them and not only did they predict it but they also explained it in very very specific detail how it was going to occur and when it was going to occur and they all got it right in that movie right and these were real people on wall street So when people say, I don't know how anybody could have seen this crash coming, well, people on Wall Street did see it coming. It's just none of those people work for CNBC. Anyway, that's enough for my rant on CNBC. Um, Two other key takeaways that I saw on the news today. One wasn't really news. It was a tweet. Elon Musk tweeted out that he thinks that the Cybertruck might actually turn out to be a complete flop. Now, this guy put this on Twitter. He's the CEO of Tesla and he comes out out of the blue out of nowhere and puts on Twitter that one of their highly anticipated products, the Cybertruck, might be a complete flop. Now, I don't know what this guy was thinking. I mean, clearly there are a lot of moments where Elon Musk isn't thinking about anything and he has total lapses in judgment. But this just shows you that all of Tesla as I've said before on this podcast, is just a pipe dream. All of the things they're promising that they're going to do and do better than everyone else, whether it be the Cybertruck, autonomous semi-trucks, robo-taxis, they are behind the rest of the industry, right? The Cybertruck is not going to be anything close to the F-150 Lightning. As as you can see, Elon Musk doesn't even believe that the Cybertruck could be successful anymore. Right. Now who knows? This may have been just another marketing stunt from him. We'll have to see. But again, they're behind in a lot of different things, whether it be the EV market as a whole now, or autonomous vehicles, right? Robo taxis, what have you, they are behind in a lot of things. And as the days continue to go on, Tesla as the becoming the premier automaker in the world is becoming more and more of a dream and less and less of a reality. So I think there's a lot of trouble in the days ahead for this stock it may not happen this week or this month. But I think over the next year or two, Tesla is going to have a lot of trouble sustaining the stock price. The other thing that I saw was Janet Yellen actually did an interview with CNBC. And she actually talked about how she thinks that inflation is starting to become a problem. Now, she did also reassure the markets that she believes inflation is transitory. But she did say that she sees inflation being extremely high right now. And it's causing a lot of problems for the consumer in the marketplace. And she is concerned about it. Now, if you know Janet Yellen and her history as the Federal Reserve chair, right, or just her time at the Federal Reserve in general, She is typically a very, very big dove. She usually is never concerned about anything. She was another one who completely missed the housing crisis in 2008. But the fact that she's worried about inflation and and in turn becoming more and more hawkish as the U.S. Treasury Secretary now, right, shows you that inflation is probably a much bigger problem than people are assuming. If Janet Yellen thinks it's a problem... Yet she's been all about quantitative easing in the past. Clearly, this is a problem that people need to be deeply concerned about. Anyway, um, as I said, a lot of the labor market restraints are from supply chain issues, right? A lot of the Federal Reserve is saying inflation is transitory. Because there are a lot of different supply chain issues going on, which is causing a shortage of goods in the economy, and therefore causing prices to go up, which is temporary. Once we fix the supply chain issues, all these prices can come back down. Now, as I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, this is not going to be the case. Because the reason we continue to have over 300,000 initial jobless claims week after week Now, 15 months into this pandemic is because a lot of the people that are unemployed and losing their jobs, there's not a similar job coming back into availability, right? A lot of these supply chain issues, right? Like uh, transportation, for instance, or transporting goods or distributing goods. A lot of people that were doing that were not the ones that were laid off. It was, again, waiters, waitresses, uh, people that worked in leisure and hospitality, right? Those are the people that are filing these job claims. Now, if you are a waiter or a waitress, chances are you're not going to start working in logistics or supply chains or transportation of goods. So this is not a temporary problem, and this is not going to get fixed anytime soon. So to claim that inflation is very transitory because of these issues, you're not looking at the situation directly. You're not seeing the overall uh, problem occurring in the labor market. There is a lot of job openings. There's 9.1 million job openings. But the problem is a lot of the 61 million people that are unemployed do not have the skills necessary to fill a lot of those jobs. Now, another problem is that we're still continuing to give unemployment benefits through September. And so some people, yes, that do have the skills to take these jobs are not taking them yet. But another factor is the fact that there is not a match of skills for jobs that are available within the economy. And again, this because a lot of the people that lost their jobs in the pandemic lost their jobs in the service sector, like in restaurants, bars, leisure and hospitality. And that's the problem when you have a service sector economy like ours, that's why a pandemic affected our economy so much. Now, you'll notice that China's economy wasn't anywhere near as heavily affected as our economy was. The reason being is they're a manufacturing economy that produces goods and services. They're a productive economy, right? Before the pandemic, they were very productive. Before the pandemic, we were a service sector economy that was very unproductive, And so because of that, our economy was much more heavily affected by COVID than China was. And you'll also hear a lot of the politicians say, oh, well, the reason we have such big trade deficits right now is because of the pandemic. Well, sure, we can hide behind that excuse, but China continues to have huge trade surpluses. So clearly it's not affecting them. So- Why is it affecting our trade deficits? Well, because we have a service sector economy and our trade deficits were going to be weak, pandemic or no pandemic. Anyway, I wanted to go over student loans because I was having a conversation today about all this uh, outstanding student loan debt that we have in our economy. As I've mentioned before, we have $1.7 trillion of outstanding student loan debt in the economy and As you know, student loans are now in a moratorium where you don't have to make payments on your student loans. Now, it's yet to be determined if people are going to have to start resuming their payments on their student loans in the future or not. It's my gut feeling that people will not have to do that and that student loans are going to be completely forgiven or at least mostly forgiven for people that are earning under a certain household income. Because as I've said, people vote with their pocketbooks and so politicians are not going to come in and tell people that they have to start paying their student loans back. It's not politically expedient to do that. But anyway, I wanted to go over why college is so expensive and just my thoughts on college in general, right? And how the government has completely destroyed the student, the whole student economy. Now. School is incredibly expensive today, whether you want to go to a community college, a local school, a state school, or a prestigious university, colleges are extremely expensive today. That was not the case 50 or 60 years ago. If you went to college in the 1950s, you could work a summer job as a waiter and earn enough money to pay for all of your tuition, room, and board throughout the entire college semester for the winter and the spring, right? Whereas today you can't go to college in most cases without paying tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to go. Now, the reason that tuitions are so high is because the government decided that they should make it easier for every American to be able to go to college. So by doing that, or in doing that, they decided that they were going to start guaranteeing student loans and so in other words if you wanted to take a loan out from a bank right the government said they were going to guarantee that loan now when you look at the business of lending money the important part about lending money out to people as a bank is getting paid back on that loan you have to know if you give somebody a loan that they are going to be able to earn enough money with that loan to pay you back, right? If you loan money to somebody that's going to start a business, you have to see their business plan to know that they have a great setup so that the business can take the money that you're lending them, invest it wisely and generate income and use that income to pay the loan off, right? So when you make loans, the key is the person you're making the loan to has to have the ability to pay you back in the future. Now, if we imagine a scenario where the government wasn't involved in guaranteeing student loans, if an 18 year old walks into a bank and tells the banker that he would want to go to college, but he doesn't have any money to pay for the tuition if the banker is going to determine whether or not he should loan that 18 year old money to go to college he would actually examine what that 18 year old is going to do with the money so in other words he would want to know what degree are you going to get how much money do you need for tuition right how good of a student are you right now what are your grades right now what's your likelihood to be able to succeed in college and what degree are you getting and what type type of an income are you gonna earn with that degree when you finish school, right? This way you ensure that if someone's gonna take out a student loan, they're gonna study something that's gonna give them marketable skills when they graduate college and enter the job market so they can earn a high income to pay the student loan back. The government though, several years ago, stepped in and said, we wanna make sure that every student can get a student loan regardless of their credit or their life situation, right? Or the degree that they wanna study. And so they said, we're gonna guarantee student loans because we know that a bank is not gonna loan money to somebody who wants to go study a liberal arts subject that can't get a reasonable salary after they graduate college, right? And by the way, I went to college for political science It is literally the most worthless degree that you can get in the world, right? My initial plan was I was going to go to college, get a degree in political science, and I wanted to go to law school afterwards. Right before finishing my degree, I decided to change my mind and I ended up not going to law school, but I wanted to finish the degree anyway because I was only a few months away from finishing the degree. But I can talk about worthless degrees because I have one and I know what a political science degree is worth. And I can tell you it's not worth the piece of paper that is is issued, the the, the degree is issued on. But anyway, if I was an 18-year-old who had no credit, no income, no assets, and I walk into a bank and I tell them I want to take out a student loan of $50,000, to go to school and study political science, the banker is not going to give me that loan, right? Because he knows there's a high likelihood that I'll never be able to pay the loan back. Because when I graduate school with a political science degree, there's no job that I can get with that degree that I couldn't get without the degree. So in other words, the investment of that education is not worth what I'm paying for it. So it's a bad loan to make out. But when the government guarantees the loans and they say, look, if the student can't pay the loan back themselves, we'll just pay the loan for you. It distorts the market because if the loan is guaranteed, right, because in theory, the federal government can't default on its loans because the Federal Reserve can just print whatever money it needs to pay the loans back. And so in theory, right, if the government is co-signing a student's loan, If the student doesn't pay the loan back, the Federal Reserve will pay the loan back, right, via the federal government. And the federal government can't default by definition. And so if you're a banker, that means if you make a loan out to a student and it's co-signed by the federal government, the second you make the loan, you make your profit because you know you're going to get paid back on the loan. And so now you don't have to even do a credit analysis on the student before making the loan because there is no risk to you. And so therefore you're going to make out loans to any student, regardless of what degree they're going to study, what their plan is, how good or bad of a student they're going to be, right? You could care less with how many assets they have, if they have a good credit score or not, you could care less because if they can't pay the loan back, The government will pay the loan back plus the interest on the loan and so you make the profit the second you make the loan and so under that scenario which is what we've had for the past few decades banks have the incentive to loan out as much money to students as they possibly can because the second they make the loan out they make the profits right now the profits don't come until the the government pays the loan back after the student graduates school But the second the loan's made out, you know that you're going to have your profits in the future. You don't have to worry about getting paid back on the loan. And so nothing happens in a box, right? Schools see this and schools say, oh, well, look, banks are trying to loan out as much money as possible, right? And they're going to loan out as much money to students as they possibly can, regardless of what the tuition costs are. Well, gee, let's just raise our tuition prices as high as we can. Right. And then people will still take the loans out to come to our school. And we'll get the tuition because they're going to use the loan to pay our tuition. Right. So there's no risk to us. Right. And there's a, a flaw in the system because of that. Right. And all colleges raise their prices. So it's not like you can even say, oh, there's competition in the market. So one college can't wait raise their prices over this one because different colleges have different amounts of prestige. Right you know, if you're a very prestigious school, right, or if you want to be one, you can raise your tuition prices, but then therefore you can go hire better professors, you can build uh, better facilities, right, better attractions to attract people to the school, right? So tuition prices go through the roof. And, you know, if you want to go get a degree, regardless of what the degree is or where you're going to school, it is extremely expensive for you. But the market is distorted because the government tried to solve a problem and therefore made it 10 times worse than it actually was. Now, another problem is that because the banks can loan out, can make any loans they want without any risk, they no longer care what the students are studying in college, right? And so they don't care. That if you're taking out a hundred thousand dollar loan to go to college, they don't care that you're going to be a doctor, an engineer, a lawyer, um, you know, a, a, you know, some sort of a marketable uh, profession. They don't care how much money you earn. And so now students can take all these programs with worthless degrees, right? And the government says, "Oh, we need people to go to school." Well, some people need to go to school like they need a hole in the head. If you graduate high school. Just that doesn't mean that just because you can go to college, that's the best option for you. There's plenty of other options out there. And there are plenty of jobs out there that don't require college degrees where you can earn very high incomes. A lot of the trades, you can go into the military, right? You can start a business. You can go into a business profession. So many, And because so many people have degrees now, employers don't even care if you have the degree. Now, sure, if you want to be a teacher or a nurse or a lawyer, you need it's a requirement that you have the degree, so you have to go to school. But so many jobs don't actually require degrees. And the thing is, is so many people have college degrees. If you write on your resume nowadays that you have a college degree, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't set you apart from the crowd. Employers don't care about college degrees. As someone who's gone to college and gone to graduate school, I've never had an employer ask me where I went to college, what my GPA was, what I studied in college. No employer cares. Employers care about how much value you're going to bring to them and how much money you're going to make them. They don't care about where you went to school. Now, yes, some professions care, but very few do. And for the ones that do care, it's mostly the ones where college is an actual requirement. But again, so many people don't need college degrees. And even so many people that I know that do have a college degree, one of their biggest regrets in life is that they went to college because now they're stuck with a student loan bill that's a mortgage payment every month, and they have a mortgage and no house. They're paying fifteen or seventeen or $1,800 a month on their student loans, and they have a degree that got them a job that makes them $70,000 a year before taxes. And so once you take taxes and the student loan payment out of the paycheck, there's no money there left for them to live, right? And so one of the worst decisions they made is that they went to college and got a degree and spent a hundred thousand dollars on it. But again, this is all a problem created by the government, right? And I suppose this isn't a problem for people now because now they don't have to pay their student loans. But you know, if you consider the fact before this the student loans were forgiven, I mean, some people they they become lawyers, they make seventy or eighty thousand dollars their first year and they can barely eat because all their money goes to paying for their student loans. But again, this is just how the market gets distorted. But people say, oh, it's not right that a person can't go can't go to school or, you know, can't have access to college because they can't get a loan. Look, the, the, if you want to go to school, right, before the government guaranteed the student loans, there are ways to pay for it if you didn't have money. Again, In the 1950s, you could just work a summer job and earn enough money to pay for your entire year's tuition, room, and board, right? So the student loans being guaranteed is what the problem is for the student loan market. The problem is if they start forgiving these student loans now, the price of college is going to go up even more because then colleges will just say, well, look, if you're a student and you want to come to school here, Then just take out a student loan and then you won't even have to pay it back so they can just they have more incentive to just raise the tuition prices even higher but again this is the moral hazard the government creates but no politician that creates these policies even thinks into this and they they just don't understand the hazards that they create within society and the last piece of student loans is a lot of people say well they should be bankruptable it's not right that you can bankrupt other debts that you may have but you can't do student loans. And it's possible that might be implemented as a policy moving forward in the next several years but the reason that you can't be you can't use bankruptcy for student loans is because as I said most college students especially the ones that need to take a student loan out the reason they need to take the student loan out is because they have no assets, no income, no job right? They don't own anything. And so there's no moral hazard there, right? If you and, and most kids that are 18 years old either have no credit or bad credit. So in other words, if you have bad credit, you have no assets, no job, and you're just starting out in life, right? And you take a student loan out and graduate college. Well, why not just declare bankruptcy the second you graduate college and just take the hit on your credit score? I mean, if you have bad credit or no credit to begin with, then what what do you have to lose, right? You have no assets that can be confiscated in the bankruptcy. So you can't make student loans bankruptable because literally every single student would take out a student loan, go to school, and then declare bankruptcy the second that they graduated school. And then nobody would pay their student loans back. So you have to understand that there's a reason for why you can't consider uh, student loans something that can be bankruptable. But again, you have to think into things. You have to look beneath the surface. Things don't happen in a box. But every government policy that's ever implemented into the economy just destroys the economy and makes whatever problem the government's trying to solve much, much worse. Anyway, that's going to be it for today. I want to wrap up here. Um, Tomorrow, uh, we're going to get the retail sales number. Uh, we'll see how retail sales go. Um, there's a pretty big expectation there and I have a feeling we're gonna meet it um because people still have leftover stimulus money and people are also still uh, taking on more and more debt to buy things um, which is also a sign of inflation by the way, because people need to take on more and more debt because the things they're buying are more and more expensive. their paychecks don't simply go as far as they used to. Um, so that's just another sign of inflation. and also, corporate sales are going up because they the producer price index is going up. So it's costs more to produce goods and services. And so those costs are getting passed on to customers and that's driving up revenues. But anyway, that's it. I'm going to wrap up here. Uh, probably be back on the weekend. Um, if I have time on Saturday, I might do a live episode uh, and then I'll have people come in and you can ask questions or we can just have conversations on whatever's on your mind. But that's it for now. But um, again, looks like the markets were pretty risk-off yesterday. We'll see how the Friday trading session turns out. And that's it for now. Take care, everyone.